Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. Many people aspire to be big in Hollywood. There's writers, directors, editors, cinematographers. But what happens when their dreams come true? Tonight we talk to a man that has actually had those dreams come true. Now Paratooth presents The Promise with special guest Sean Paul Murphy. What's going on, Parafans? Welcome to another episode of Paratruth Radio, right here on the Paratruth Radio Network. I am running solo tonight. Uh, Eric had some things going on, so uh, he will not be here this week or next week. Uh, so I do have some things lined up for next week. Uh, but for today, uh, I am running solo. We have a great guest coming on tonight, Uh Sean Paul Murphy, he has wrote several uh, movies uh, from a Christian standpoint. Uh, he has also written a book called The Promise or the Pros and Cons of Talking with God. So, without further ado, I'm going to go to the line with Sean Paul Murphy. All right, Sean, welcome to Paratruth Radio. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing fantastic. Uh, honored to have you on. Uh, it's been something that's been kind of on my mind because uh, I did hear you on Tag Girl for God with uh, Jerry, who's actually on our network now, um, and loved hearing you speak. So I did want to give you a chance to tell everybody a little bit about yourself, about your work, and uh, how you got started. Well, I'm a... Um I'm a screenwriter, and I'm an editor, not a book editor, I'm a film editor, um, which is now, since we don't use film anymore, it's video, Yeah. and um, I write movies, I've been doing it for a while, I also um, I also work on, you know, shows for like the Discovery Channel and um, TLC, and I've also recently had a book published, The Promise, or The Pros and Cons of Talking with God. And um, so it, it's been pretty good. You know, I've done 14 produced feature films, and I've done a number of award-winning short films. And um, so I guess I could say I'm award-winning. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you can say that. There's probably yeah. many that cannot. <laughs> yeah, not all award, not all awards are equal, though. Well, well, I'm sure that's true too. But um, so, what kind of got you started? Uh, Shaping films from a Christian standpoint, I mean, there's plenty of people that, that come from the other standpoint, so it's kind of interesting to see somebody who is similar to Eric, uh, 
making his films towards more a somewhat Christian standpoint because he kind of shoots for anybody to be guessing what what his films are because uh, he's got <laughs> he's got one that's going to be coming out called The Revealed about uh, about extraterrestrials sort of but uh, he lets the the viewer you know determine for themselves so whether they're really demons right right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, um I was I started off um, well first off I am a Christian so I already knew the language right and secondly um, I from the very beginning many 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 years ago I have been I've always incorporated some kind of religious or redemptive themes, even in most of the secular stuff. Most of my secular scripts had some sort of redemptive theme, which a little rewriting could make it a Christian film. But um, years ago, my second script was sort of like a Left Behind story, a End Times movie. Prior to Left Behind, I could have invented the genre. And it got some interest in Hollywood. It got me an agent looking around. And then I wrote another um, horror movie with Christian themes, which also got me um, got me a lot of interest. Actually, someone at CAA wanted to pick it up, but um, they wanted to make changes. So um, I rejected CAA. You know, overall, probably my biggest career mistake. <laughs> but the um, funny thing about it is that um, back then there was no Christian film genre. So I actually think it was better back then because if, you, if I, any of these films I wrote had to compete in the mainstream marketplace. Mm-hmm. And people weren't trying to make Christian films. And the only reason the faith theme, the um, faith themes worked was because they were integral to the story. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't just tacked on. It isn't like we say, okay, one person has to be saved. They have to go through the whole sinner's prayer. And believe me, people tell me that, that, you know, mm-hmm. you got a whole list of things that you're supposed to do. So these films, in a sense, I think would have been um, better. And one one of those scripts was just recently optioned not too long ago again. So, um We'll see what happens, but in many ways, I think that was better to try to reach towards the mainstream. Not that I haven't enjoyed these other films, um, and if I think I've avoided your question, but it, but why I started writing them more recently is I had just released an independent film that I wrote called okay. Twenty One Eyes, and it was very frustrating. It got really, you know, it's got some really nice reviews. It played in a ton of film festivals. We got picked up by this distributor who, like, totally, um, they did good art box artwork. I'll give them that much. Mm-hmm. They did give us an advance. <laughs> but, um, which, of course, anytime you get an advance, assume that's all the money you'll ever see. Right, yeah. <laughs> if you do that, you'll, you'll never be disappointed. And, um, but, you know, it would have sold, it, you know, I don't know how many copies we ended up, I never saw the documentation we sold, but it's sort of like, it was such a ripoff, and I wanted to write something that I could market myself. So I wrote this script called I, John, which was a, kind of a return to my Christian themes. Okay. And, um, and as I wrote it, I, I wrote it with the plans to produce it myself and market it myself, you know, getting to raise enough money to do radio in certain markets and market it around. Mm-hmm. So um, as I was trying to gauge what... Um, was acceptable in the marketplace, what people were doing. 
I ended up picking up a number every Christian film out there. You know, films by like like Rich Cristiano and. Um, a lot of them were star, you know, were had the Downs brothers or, um, you know, Kevin Downs and his brother, he produced them and Kevin's in them. And, or David A.R. White, and somehow I ended up sending a script to um, David A.R. White. I approached Bobby Downs, he said, um, who was at that time, they were partners in a company called, I think, Signal Rock or Eagle Rock or something. Eagle Rock, sorry. And um, that turned out, you know, they liked it. They really liked my script that I had written, which later won the Cairo, the $50,000 Cairo's prize. I didn't get to keep all 50000 But, um, you know, but Dave, you know, very true to form said, look, I really like this script. It's got a good sense of humor, which Christian writers don't generally have. And he said, but here's the thing. Kevin and I like to do movies that we can star in. And there was no roles for Kevin and, um, Kevin and David. So, um, they said they wanted to do, this is the other thing they do, you know, secular, ver- you know, Christian versions of secular films. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want to do a, um, Christian big chill. Do you think you could write that? And I said, and they said they wanted it to be a comedy. So I brought along my friend Tim Radishak, who was very funny, with me to write that. And then we sort of saved partners through a good, Part of our um, pure folks experience. Okay. So, uh, did I take a breath at any time during that? I was so curious. I didn't seem like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and have you ever have you noticed doing both full sides, the secular and the Christian, where they edit it differently for the Christian side compared the to the the secular side? You mean um, in um, you mean in editing or in the scripting or in the scripting? In the in the uh, um, editing. Well, I'll tell you, um, there are like pure flicks. Like I've done some films, like the Revelation Road movies, mm-hmm. where they release in Europe essentially entirely secular versions of the film. Okay, they cut Jesus out of them entirely. Okay, you know, and I tell them that's going to kill their brand one day if they people find out that. You know, they they make a big store of you know we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they go and release um, entirely secular versions of right. the You know, and the, even uh, Encounter Two, I they told me there was a secular version of that, and I'm like, how can there be? It's about Jesus um, talking to people directly. You know? <laughs> what did you call him Buddha or something? Right. That was secular. <laughs> But they apparently played up. There were some additional scenes of drug business that I uh, never end up even seeing. I've never seen any of these secular versions of these films. Okay. Yeah, it, it just seems like... Uh, Hypocrisy? Well, yeah. But what I was going to say is, you know, it, it, it and that kind of is my point. There's been a lot of controversy over people that do... Christian films and try to sell them to big companies and they end up editing them so much that it's not even the original film. I'm sure that happens with any film, but it seems to happen more so with um, a lot of the Christian films. Um, I don't think that's as true as it used to be. Okay. You know, like one of the reasons, like I told you that one script I wrote that was optioned again recently, I was nervous if I sold that with the one that CAA was interested mm-hmm. in, that they may have toned down the Christianity a little bit. Because um, in many ways, it's more Christian than my Christian film. But because 
and everyone, people opinion who read it that it was a very exciting story. Okay. People were willing to look aside. But now, because if you look at who are releasing the big Christian films, it's sort of like, you know, what's Fox Faith and Sony, you know, they're the faith divisions. They're pretty much keeping the faith in the films as okay. they're releasing this country. But here's why, because they know that these films will have no crossover appeal. Oh, you know? okay. So it's sort of like a Tyler Perry movie. They're making it for, or, you know, a horror movie. Mm. You know, they're not anticipating that, you know, my 94-year-old grandmother is going to go out and see whatever, um, you know, paranormal activity for. She's not going to go out and <laughs> bothering to take her into account. Right. And I think that's true of these films. I don't think anyone's ever accused, like, the Kendricks or anyone of toning down their movies and... Um, Pure Flix, um, they were trying to be, uh, well, you know, they just released the secular versions, but not in the United States. Right. So, um, but that was their decision. It wasn't like, it wasn't anyone else's decision. Oh. You know, so it isn't like they, you know, because they are their own distributors now, in particular. So um, I think now, but see, that's also the drawback. And one thing, you know, I've been doing Christian films now, and I have, I have another one, hopefully, that will go in production very soon. Mm-hmm. And you got to ask yourself, why are we making these movies? I right. think that's, that's a key. And are, are we, as Christians, making movies? Is it good that we are making... What I've seen, in my opinion, and, you know, people may yell at me for this, is that we're creating our own ghetto, you know, because because people don't expect our films to cross over. Mm-hmm. You know, studios are willing to make them at a certain budget level. They're willing to release them, you know, and if you can get the churches out to support it, you can make a lot of money. But by doing this, our, by concentrating our efforts in... Um, Strictly in this genre, and Christian films now are a genre. Are we abandoning the wider culture? And is, should we be? You know, it's like, are we making films for ourselves, or are we making films to be light to the world? And I think we're making films to ourselves for ourselves. It seems to me, you know, they're all about you know a lot of them that go to the theaters are about the culture war, and, and you know, obviously we're not trying to win it. We're just feeding, throwing red meat to our audience, right? You know, it's not really about, you know, saving souls or influencing the culture. It's just, you know, rah-rah for us. Yeah, well, and I'm an aspiring writer myself, and I think one of the biggest biggest things I think is, I mean, um, one of my writer friends actually said, you know, write for yourself, but publish for your readers. Um, and it's very wise advice. It's it's one of those things that I've heard many writers say. Oh, I don't make a lot of money off of it. Which I mean, that's not entirely true. There's plenty of writers that have made huge amounts of money with their books. But obviously, look at the luxury I'm living in. <laughs> corner of my dining room. A lot of scripts have been written right <laughs> Well, I designate my my area myself for my writing so I completely understand there but I think it's it, it's very important that you write for yourself and to get the story out 
And I'm yeah. sure a lot of people get lost in the fame of it if they do hit it big, um, whether they are coming from a Christian standpoint or any other standpoint. Um, so I, I think you're hitting it on the head there that so many people don't do it to get the message out. They do it to make money. And I, in my opinion, whether you're doing it for a Christian, uh, point of view or any other point of view if you are trying to do it to get get rich I mean then it's just another get rich scheme in my opinion yes. well I, my, I don't know if you ever checked out my blog Sean Paul Murphyville okay. you know dot, uh, blogspot.com you know, just type in Sean Paul Murphyville you'll find it <laughs> I do give a lot of writing tips um, and one of the things I always say is you have to make it real to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and particularly someone like me, most of the films I've written that were produced were, um, were commissioned, were films. And they're all going to be crap unless you, uh, unless you make it real to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see, you know, if you were to read my book, which was a memoir, wait a second, sorry. You won't believe it. I just happen to have a copy of my book right here. <laughs> but if you were to read my book and then look at the movies, you'd see a lot of similarities to incidents, you know, that from my life. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you're hired to write a film about an astronaut going to Mars. Mm-hmm. Now, you've never experienced that yourself. But there's, you know, here's a guy who's going to leave his family. There's issues of loss and loneliness and things like that that you may have experienced. Mm-hmm. And those are the things you've got really captured. Because in the end, you know, there's emotional truth. And people can tell whether you're doing it or not, whether there is emotional truth. Right. You know, beyond action, beyond acting, beyond drama, beyond comedy. You know, there's got... If it's not true to you, why are, why are you even writing it? If you exactly. can't find a way to make it real, you know, why do it? Right. And, I mean, if, if you can't, I mean, if you write it and you can't even read through it, how do you expect other people to enjoy it? <laughs> exactly. You know. Well, the good thing about writing commission scripts for um, companies that do on relatively low budget, they at least want the script short. So, you know, they usually want a 90 to 100 page script. So those are easier to get through right. if you don't yeah. like it. Yeah. 120 page one right. so there is some benefit to working on the issue <laughs> alright well I did want to get a couple of the uh, questions that Eric had given me to ask you as well uh, I'll get the one out and then we'll go to break here um, one of the questions he had was what was your first script that was successful oh that's that's really tough it depends what you consider successful oh, right. my second yeah. script The Mark got, got me um got me an agent who didn't handle writers, but he handled directors and he liked the script and he tried to package it with one of his directors. So although that film was never made, I would consider it successful. My third script, CAA was interested in. Uh, Like my fifth script, um, I got a really good agent, Stu Robinson, who subsequently died. Robinson, Weintraub, and Gross, who later merged his company and became Paradigm. And, you know, I got a lot of great reads. You know, um, and so I would consider that successful. You know, I, I've written, you know, so from the second script on, there's been some degree of success. Not always, but. Well, yeah. <laughs> if people are reading it, if people are liking it, if people are recommending you, people are, you know, if they read your script and say, hey, this isn't for me, but do you have any Christmas movies? 
or do you have any woman in jeopardy movies? Then it's a successful script. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest things. Like I've had, like my writer friend that I was saying, uh, I had had her read it, and uh, she loved the book um, because I am in the revision of doing the book, so I wanted other people's opinions on it. Because do the book first, and it's going to be a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and she loved so, it. So I mean, the only thing she she had suggested to me is be a little more descriptive, which I had already just reading through it. I'm like, I didn't give descriptions for people's uh, people's appearances, where where this is set, that sort of a thing. So it's kind of interesting to get other people's perspectives before you you take that next day, leap. Day jaw five right. cents. <laughs> yeah. Or on para, paratruth, maybe six cents. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. We did this movie, Sarah's Choice, starring Rebecca St. James, and um, they decided, you know, Rebecca St. James has written a number of books, and they would decide they wanted to do a, you know, a book of the movie after the movie had been released. And Tim, the other screenwriter, and I were invited to do the book by Rebecca St. James, you know, um, you know, her um, literary manager, and it was a decent paying job. But they gave us these examples. I always called it the um, drops on the windshield because. You know, they were like examples, chapters of clients of theirs who had, like, published books aimed at women. It was sort of like all about the bag and all about the shoes they were carrying and the shoes they were and how the raindrop was going down the window and the windshield wiper wiped it. And um, I think Tim and I were kind of at odds about how to write it. He's like, let's just keep it close to the script. And I was sort of like, oh, we got to write it like a woman's book. And... Um, <laughs> Right, trying to find the right style really handcuffed me because you hear so much about style. Mm-hmm. But in the case of like my book, um, The Promise or The Pros and Cons of Talking to God, available on Amazon, um, what I did was I just wrote it myself. And people really love the style of it. So now I know what style to write anything in the future is just write it in my own voice because people seem to like it right. rather than trying to emulate another voice whether that means too descriptive not descriptive enough it'll depend on the thing and I guess if I get to an editor and they tell me I'm writing you know when you get to the editing part of the book and they say you know more of this less of that I'll follow follow their instructions right yeah I mean and that's the biggest thing I mean you can read other people's stuff but in the end it's your style. You're gonna you're gonna write it your style. Not it shouldn't be somebody else's yeah. style because then basically it's their book or their exactly. <laughs> so exactly you know because I wrote because what I wrote was a memoir and I was warned by another uh, one of my uh, movie stars, Tracy Melkor, who wrote a book, um, mm. Breaking the Perfect Ten, about how she broke all ten of the commandments. Oh. Her bar. And she told me, and she gave me a very good piece of advice, because I'm very afraid that people are going to beat me up when they read my book, that <laughs> I should not send it to anyone. I should not let anyone read it until it was published, because, because then you'll get their opinions, and then you'll be telling you the story of your life through their opinion. Or right. there are. Right. Because, uh, just write it yourself and just be willing to take the angry phone calls. <laughs> but I'm a coward. <laughs> All right, folks, I think we're going to take our first break here. You are listening to Paratruth Radio right here on the Paratruth Radio Network. I've been talking to Sean Paul Murphy about his illustrious career. We will be right back after Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Now, Eric's Random Fact of the Day. 
Killer whales are one of the most powerful predators of the sea. They feast on marine mammals such as seals, sea lions, and even whales, employing teeth that can be four inches long. They are even known to grab seals right off of the ice. However, did you know that killer whales, aka orcas, are actually not whales at all? According to animals.nationalgeographic.com, killer whales are actually killer dolphins, and they are by far the largest of the dolphin species. <laughs> History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. All right, folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin. I've been talking to Sean Paul Murphy about his career, and uh, he also has a book out called The Promise. Uh, what's the rest or of it? I apologize. Or, or yeah. Pros and of talking to God. Right. Readily available. <laughs> Though why anyone would buy a book that has that picture of me on it, <laughs> I have no idea. My wife would. It was the publisher's idea. It wasn't. I was, was going to say it. It was either that or something that wouldn't have even related to the book to begin with. So. It was a part of another part of my body, and I thought that was less of a good <laughs> All right. Well, there was a couple other uh, questions here that Eric had for you. Um, Please. He asked, how long does it take you to write a script, and on average, what is the length of your script? Well... The quickest professional script we did, Tim and I wrote the rough draft of Sarah's Choice in two weeks, you know, because um, we were given the assignment around Thanksgiving, and Hollywood closes down in two weeks before Christmas, and we, they needed that, a script to do casting. So we had the rough draft done in two weeks. Generally on my own, I would say I usually write a script in about a month. When I'm writing some, if I have the time, I usually write a script on my own about a month. When I'm working on assignment, I try to write a script that's around 90 to 100 pages usually. My other scripts, I try never to go over 122. You know, I try to make it around 
between like 112 and um, 120. You know, I am, you know, that prejudice is definitely true where they get a script in, they just skip to the end and see how many pages it is, and it's too many pages, you know, uh, they don't read it. And I'm almost the same way. I read some people's scripts and I do look at the end because, you know, if, you, if someone gives you a script that's 175 pages long, you know it's no good because they're not paying attention to the rules and, you know, they didn't know what the story was. I heard um, the guy who wrote a quiz show, Anastasia, say that, you know, the script's 130 pages long. It's because they couldn't figure out what the story was. Oh. So they... Is that the number that they usually look for? Like one thirty is way too high, or is it, what's the like the? Some number? people let. Usually, I think the high limit is one twenty-five. Okay. But now we send everything in files. Okay. So that's right. kind of tricky because you got the cover page, and that counts as a page. Right. Normally, if you sent the script, the cover page wasn't numbered. Right. So you could do one twenty-five, but now if you do one twenty-five, it's really. You know, if you send someone a PDF and everybody wants PDF stamp, it's 126. Oh. So we're kind of screwed by the um, cover pages, <laughs> by the PDF format, and you can't send something without a title page. Right. So I would never send anything out over 125 unless for some reason it was a commission thing and they thought they wanted it to be wrong. Okay. Uh, the last question he had was, what would you say to someone who wants to make a career in writing scripts for film? It's harder now than it used to be. Um, in the I started really writing scripts in the 90s when I started really getting some success actually a little earlier than that. I don't want to give away how old I am. <laughs> but uh, back then, there was a huge market for spec scripts. And that's where the money was. So lots of agents would read spec scripts. Mm -hmm. It was very easy to get an agent. For me to get an agent, all I had to do, you know, if I sent out 30 queries, I could probably get an agent during the 90s. That's how easy it was. You know, if you write a good query letter. And if you go to Sean Paul Murphyville, you can actually see the queries that got me my book published, the query that got me my first real agent. You know, so I act, I save everything, so I actually reproduce those. And I didn't have any credits when I um, got my first real agent, so it's like it's easy to write a query letter now. Right. You know, but it's harder when you don't have any credits. But I think it's more difficult now because, especially since the last writer strike, a lot of basically agents now really only want established writers that are generating a great deal of income mainly television writers, because for the agency, if you're kind of contract with a show, you're like an ATM, you're, you're giving them money every week. Okay. You know, if you're, if you're a spec writer, like I am, you know, I may take three months before I give them a second script, and then that may not be good. They may not like that one. And it's, you know, so I'm not the cash register that someone is. And also, when I started out, there really weren't any managers. So now what agents expect is um, for people to get a manager first and for the manager to do all the work, and then the agent comes along once you're already generating a great deal of income. Right. And I'm not really sold on the whole manager thing. You know, so I've been having good enough luck. And, you know, I um, just recently talked to a guy that was handled by ICM, and when he was at ICM, he, he wrote some um, interesting scripts that were, you know, were made and got other assignments. Even then, he was mainly making the connections, making the contacts, 
and approaching people and pitching people for the scripts, and then the agency come in behind them. So on, I do think if you're somewhat professional, you can definitely get your script in with people, provided you're professional and um, you have a good query letter. And, you know, and then, then we'll see. You can't get into the top-tier companies. You can't get... I couldn't, like, I couldn't get universal. I couldn't send it to universal. I mean, would not be able to necessarily send it to, like, Pixar. Right. But most of the other companies, or Imagine, or, you know, a company like that, I don't know who's big now. It would have been relativity, but, you know, they're gone. But, you know, uh, I could not get a script in there, but I can get in pretty much anything lower than that based on, you know, for um, feathers right. taxes. I don't live in Hollywood and I don't approach people. I don't like to talk to people. People say you should call people. But I don't want to be um, judged by my conversation. I'm a writer. I want people to judge me by words on paper. Right, right. And yeah, I couldn't completely agree with that. And I'm, I'm the type of person that I just don't like talking on the phone, period. So I would not want to be the... Skype, um, though. Yeah, well... <laughs> For the show, it's a little different. But yeah. Personal phone calls, I try and avoid them. <laughs> um, I'll tell you one thing: a mistake I think a lot of young filmmakers are making is, um, you know, because of the cheap technology and how easy it is to make movies. Mm. People all feel they should go out and make their own movie, and, and well, it depends what you want out of it, out of life. But you know. So many people are doing it. The, the market is flooded with these low-budget films. You know, if you really want to make films, you know, I'm at the point now where, you know, I, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I turn down assignments if I don't think people will see the movie. You know, if I don't think they have a um, distributor, I don't think they have a big enough budget to attract known actors in it. Right. You know, there's like no point, you know, because I don't want to make films that nobody sees. Right. You know, it's not enough to go to, you know, to go to, you know, a bunch of film festivals. You know, I've done that route. It's a lot of fun. But, you know, you're never going to get the return. I mean, everybody, you know, if you want to be a writer and Eric wants to be a writer, I'm sure you'd like to do that for a living. Right. But if you're making films for $15,000 with your friends, you know, you won't make the films for a living because those films will never be successful. They will never return enough money to warrant the time to do them. You know, when you're young, that's great. But once you get married, you have kids, you have a house, you know, you really need to make things that are going to generate the income, you know. In the beginning, when I was in there, I was thinking, like, when I first thinking about independent films, if the film returned the budget to the investor, that was like, hey, that's great. You know, and that is always my primary goal. I hate right, to see it. Right, so, But then you think about it, okay, the investor got his money back, but I spent nearly a year working on this movie, writing it, producing it, you know, editing it, doing, you know, it's a lot of work, and then you're like, I would have made more money had I worked at McDonald's than making this movie. You know, so a lot of people can't resist the urge to go out and make their first film. And that's my first produced film. But at least it was a union picture with no actors in it. But, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, if your goal is to make movies for a living, try to do it the right way. You know, your, your career will be better served by making, you know, a $70 million movie for Paramount, one of them. Then 32, you know, films for $15,000 a piece. Right, yeah. 
So I would I would recommend that. And I tell people it's better to get no's from the right people. If you got no's from the, from twenty of the twenty of the top people in Hollywood and said and, and, and didn't make the film, they'll still be better off than if you made the film uh, for fifteen thousand dollars on yourself and nobody saw it. That's, that's my opinion. Could be wrong. <laughs> so that leads me kind of to my next, next question. You know, everybody says it's all about who you know in this type of industry. Do you think that's true? If you're making films on your own, yeah, it, it really <laughs> is because that's who you're going to try to get in. You know, but I never knew anybody. You know, I, um, I just sent, you know, I wrote scripts. I sent letters to people, you know, and then people would read it. And those were the people I knew. Okay. You know, and um, there are a couple of producers that have come, come close to making films with mm-hmm. that, you know, are on like the top of the list. They've been very supportive. And one day we'll make a film together. You know, there are a couple people like that. And um, I, have a, I have a very detailed, like, um, program of names and, uh, and what they've read, what they're looking for. That I built up over years, my master list. You know, so those are the people I know, and it helps me um, to, with that I know people now. Like in particular, I know a very good casting director. You know, so if I really need to go attack somebody, but what I really need now is somebody who knows Billy Idol. I wrote a film that actually has Billy Idol as a character. Oh, okay. <laughs> But I don't know any, I don't personally know anyone who knows Billy Idol, but I know if I got Billy Idol, I'd have to film me tomorrow. <laughs> so if anyone out there knows Billy Idol, contact me. Right. I got, you know, I'll cut you in on a piece. <laughs> well, we are heard all around the world, so I'm sure if somebody knows Billy Idol, they will try and get you in contact with them. Yeah, get me in touch with Billy Idol <laughs> for my script, Lifelike, which I think is the best script I've written since the mid 90s. That's good. So, um, out of all of your scripts, and especially ones that have become uh, full-length features, what are what is your favorite or your couple of favorites? Well, that's a very difficult question because you never know a screen a screenwriter who can't direct who doesn't direct. I don't want to direct. It's <laughs> never going to be completely happy because that, nothing's ever as good as you imagined it. Yeah. You know, but I would say the film that claimed closest to my vision was the first one called Twenty One Eyes. Okay. Which is possibly going to be remade. I can't talk about. And um, I would say that that was the best film. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, closest to what I did, and I think it's it's a gas, and it was in like thirty film festivals, maybe I think. You know, it was in a ton of them, and it was a lot of fun. Of the faith based films. I would say that I think the most entertaining one is Hidden Secrets, which is the first of them, with John Schneider and then Tracy Melchior. Um, the one, um, the one that has the most impact on people's lives, and you gotta love that, is The Encounter, which was the fifth one I made. Okay. You know, Jesus in a Diner, I don't know if you've seen it. And it's really an amazing sleeper film. It was the lowest budget film I've ever done. That's not true. I did a documentary there, lower budget. <laughs> essentially, pizzas, I think, were, you know, someone just said meals on the, uh, when we went out to shoot. It was about the budget of that film. But other than that, the encounter was the lowest budget of film, and there was zero press for it when it came out. It was very disappointing. 
because I saw it at the premiere and had an altar call at this Boston Film Festival. 200 people in the theater came forward the first screen. And, you know, then people, it was on Netflix, and that people discovered it there, and it became a huge success. Until God's Not Dead came out, it was pure folks' most profitable movie. You know, so. Yeah. Well, I, and I had tried to look for several of your films to try and get some of them watched before the interview, and I couldn't find them anywhere unless I had to to rent them or something. So, um, well, you, do you have Netflix? I do. Well, here now, you all know my pet peeve about the Christian film business. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> okay. And I, I was recently invited to pitch for a um, for a provider who has a firewall. Okay. Here's the thing. Everybody says, everybody does this, go, you know, oh, we're doing this to reach people for the Lord. Oh, we're spreading the gospel. Oh, we're spreading the gospel. That's our goal. That's what it's really all about. So what are they doing now? You know? They are putting the content, they're making exclusive content and putting it behind firewalls. And not just PureFlix, other companies too. You know, and behind a firewall, no one's ever going to be able to see it. You know, yeah. a non-believer is not going to say, oh, I'm feeling down today. Hey, I should, I should take out my credit card and subscribe to this Christian site, even though I'm not a Christian and have no interest in it. You know, but I tell you what, on the encounter, when the film, that's why all of my films, as, as they're coming off of Netflix, for a while, everything I did was on Netflix, except the last Black Rider film, which they didn't put on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And there, people could discover it. People would say, ah, oh. and even, there, a lot of them were on Christian television. I don't know if they've been on, but they'd be on like four or five different channels. And it's like, you know, not people don't usually, non-believers don't normally seek out those channels, but if you're flipping through, and you see, the, you know, mine comes up green if it's a movie. And I'm always interested in movies. You say, oh, there's a film starring Sting. I'm a wrestling fan. And here's a movie starring Sting. I'll watch that. <laughs> there's a chance that non-believers will actually see the movies. And on Netflix, it ended, you know, The Encounter hit a lot of categories like mystery, mm. you know. It hit, a, you know, science, I don't know, I think they ended up with science fiction or something. So a lot of people were seeing the film. And it was having a huge impact. But I think that's off. I think Encounter 2 is still on. But most of the films are off Netflix. Pure Flix is putting most of its product, it seems now, behind its own firewall, which is um, pureflix.com. So... You know, it's probably very good as a business decision if you're a distributor. Right. But if you if you are what you really say you are, and your goal is to spread the gospel, it's you know, yeah, it's just hypocrisy. Right. Hiding it is not not the way to. Your flicks of hypocrisy. If you're if you're not if you're trying to get the word out, hiding it isn't the way to get it out. I I completely exactly. agree. Exactly, and and it's not just them. There's a couple other sites, and you know, I was invited to pitch for some exclusive content too, and that's what really got me thinking about it as well. And this isn't to say I don't believe in making writing secular scripts. I certainly do. Most of what I've written is secular, but. My view is, if you're going to write a Christian movie, write a Christian movie. Write something that actually, you know, that does something. You know, just don't, you know, you get so many... When I first started, there would be like a Christian DVD out every two months, three months. You know, and now there are so many, you can't possibly keep track of them. And most of them are horrible. 
You know, they're all done for like seven dollars, and you know, but and there's a lot of companies distributing them. But you know, yeah, it's you know, it's not it's not going well, and a lot of those people are now being sucked up into these exclusive digital rights things. People are calling me and asking me about this all the time. Yeah, whether they should do it. A lot of. Uh Going back to what you had said about there's a lot of independent films out there, and uh, a lot of them usually end up on Netflix for whatever reason it is, and I I cannot understand how these people think their movies turn out well, because coming from a writing standpoint, I will watch I will watch the first twenty minutes just to give it time to to sink in, and if the acting is bad or if the portrayal of let's say for for example a monster is bad in a horror movie <laughs> it it just it I shut it off right away um, and the one thing that I do have to say about Eric's movie The Revealed which it's a, it's a short movie but um, he did get good equipment from the school and I told him that the trailer, just the trailer itself, looks better than any independent film on Netflix. So I, I want to put it up to be a feature. Then. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Well, you know, even... Netflix just sucks up as much stuff as they can. Yeah, but now they've been spending a lot of their money making their own stuff and getting television shows. But they're still picking up a lot, a lot of the low budget stuff. And um, you know, if, if you spend, you know, say, you know, fifty thousand dollars, which is not a huge budget, right? You know, if you made a film that didn't hit the theater, your Netflix is not going to pay you fifty thousand dollars, right? You know, and you know, it's a really Netflix is a really good deal if you're an aggregator. You know, where if you can get or like a here's the way distribution works for most companies. There's such a flood of material. They essentially don't have to pay anybody advances anymore. Okay. And after a year or so, you know, people are desperate to get their film out at any cost. So basically what a distributor will do is they'll pick up your film for nothing. They'll aggregate it in a deal for Netflix and say 10 films maybe or 20 films for $50,000, okay. of which... Depending on how they break, how they do their books, you're going to see none of that money. And even if you did, if there's 20 films and it's fifty thousand dollars, how much would you actually see? Not enough to, not enough to care. Right. And um, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to give you any money. It's not going to pay back your investor. But if you're an aggregating a bunch of films and putting it on Netflix, then that's a think about it. You're getting product for free. From filmmakers, yeah, and you get to make money on it, and you don't have to pay that back because they're not making enough money. A lot of people have been going away from these percentage deals because people, filmmakers, are nervous because they're like they keep putting expenses since I'll never see it back. And then the distributor say, "Oh, I'll tell you what, we'll do a flat fee. We'll distribute your film for twenty thousand dollars, and then anything after that, you get nine, you get ninety, and we get ten. Well, the distributors do that because they know the film will never generate twenty thousand dollars, right? So they get to keep all of the money that comes in, and it costs them nothing because they just give it to the existing people that work there. And you know they may put out some DVDs, but the DVD market is, is like completely tanked. 
You know, uh, if you can't get your, you know, to have a DVD app is meaningless. Right. Unless it's in stores. You know, so it's really a tough business. And the income that the filmmakers lost from DVD sales has not been replaced by streaming. You know, maybe in due time. I really think there's an effort by the major corporations to squeeze. You know, look at look at music. You know, it's all streaming now too. Right. Basically, they don't want you to buy the media anymore. They want you to rent it. And I think that you know that is like the purpose of it. And once everyone's used to not going out and buying a CD of their favorite artist or buying a movie, then they'll be able to up the prices up on streaming to compensate for the cost of production. Right. Yeah. But for independent filmmaker, we're screwed. Yeah. Well, and I, I honestly have noticed that a lot with a lot of the you know the. Um, Movie rental places just completely going out of business. Blockbuster's gone unless they still have their their online things. They may um, have set stores or something. Right, and uh, a lot they of they must control the business. Yeah, that goes how things change. You know, Blockbuster had its awards on TV. Every star showed up. Yeah, because they were afraid. And Blockbuster used to dictate policies to major studios. And then suddenly, in like a three year time, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, even the independent, I mean, uh, video rental stores, they're, they're gone. I've yeah. had at least two others other than Blockbuster here in Bismarck, North Dakota, completely just shut down. And it's, it's sad in a sense that, I mean, you can't just go in and rent a movie anymore. You have to look it up digitally and then stream it on your TV and, it's it's gotten a little more um, complex, so to speak, unless you go to like a red box, which yeah. those are everywhere now. So yeah, but they, they only have so many movies at those. Well, places. right, yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. Here's to me as a, what I loved about Blockbuster and the mom and pop stores is, I think I was somewhat aware as a moviegoer of things that are coming out the big stuff. But the little stuff, I need to see it. You know what I mean? I don't go right, out yeah. search. I don't go, you know, on Netflix. I just don't say, like, type in a keyword and try to find the movie. You know, I mean, I miss, you know, but when you're on Blockbuster, they, they were so intent on having new movies every week, even if they were total garbage, mm-hmm. that at least you can look at the box. At right. least you were seeing the movie. You know, even if you just saw the sideways and you saw the name of it, right. at least you were exposed to it. And now, you know, people are always talking, oh, I'm going to put this movie out, we're going to do a viral campaign. Really? How many viral campaigns have worked, you know, that have made, you know, huge films? They don't work. It's, it's, more, it's more work now. And the same with, like, um, I like to go to, um, there's like one or two good video stores left that have a lot of, that have a lot of Blu-rays in them. And I just love to go and look and see what's out. Mm-hmm. But even they don't have all the titles I want because I, because sometimes I want to see a movie, I want to buy it. I'll go and check it out. It's not there, and then I'll see. Oh, it has been released. And of course, no one's carrying it. So, right. Yeah. Then I have to get, buy it online. But I would prefer always to get brick and mortar preference, even if it's um, a little more expensive. Right. You know, I just I just like to be able to handle stuff. You know, well, I mean, that kind of goes along the lines of uh, you know the the e-readers versus an actual book now too. I, I mean, I I have an e-reader, but. 
I prefer reading an actual book because you do get to see the entire book on front and back cover, whereas an e-reader, you have to flip all the way through the entire book to get to the, the back cover. So yeah, Exactly. And, you know, because personally, you know, what I like to read, I like to read The Promise or The Pros and Cons Talking to Murphy. <laughs> now, I could read this in Kindle, but it's not as much fun. I mean... When I first got this, the first book I published, and I tell you, when I got the first copies in, you take it out of the box, and you smell it. Yeah. And what, you smell that glue. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just so exciting. And it's, and it's like records. You, I don't know if you're old enough to remember records. Uh, yeah, but I am. <laughs> the record was, you know, the, you know, they're coming back to a small degree. Yeah. But, you know, you get a record, you put it on, and you're sitting there, you're looking at the cover, and then you're looking at the back, you're right. looking at the liner notes. You know, it, it doesn't, MP3s just don't do that. Right, yeah. You know, it's, you're, it's like that was part of the fun and part of the experience. And, and uh, I haven't gone to Kindle yet. I did try to do a, um, I was going to read my book for, um, you know, books on tape. Oh. And I read through a number of chapters of it. Then I did, you know, because it's a real book about real people, I decided right. to further obscure some names, which meant all the, all the reading I had done was, um, worthless. <laughs> so I'm like, nah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, I think one of the biggest things for me, too, is the smell of old books and, I'm sure a lot of people will get grossed out by that, but, like, the very old manuscripts, and you smell it, and it's, like, that old musty paper and and whatever they used for adhesive back back in the day. Um, and even the ink. The ink smelled much different than it does now, too. So I, I think that uh, we, we are getting away from the old-school way of doing things, and, I mean... I'm old enough to appreciate all of the old school things, except for, um, and A-Tracks kind of came back, or came out after records, but, uh, I never really listened to A-Tracks, but my dad was a... I was a very late adapter to A-Tracks. <laughs> someone gave me a stereo, one of my uncles gave me a stereo that had A-Tracks later. You couldn't buy A-Tracks new anymore, but if you went to Goodwill, you could get them for 10 cents. Right, yeah. So I'd go buy, buy these huge stacks of A-Tracks. <laughs> And then, you know, a long song, you know, and it, it fades down in the middle as it switches tracks yeah. and fades back up. <laughs> Not a great format, but it was amusing. Right. <laughs> yeah. My dad, to this day, still has records, and we had actually had to, at one point, get him a new record player because the one that he had had failed. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting to still see that there are people still trying to hold on to that old, old school thing. Um, even my, my, fiance, back. yeah, my fiance's parents still have a VHS player and VHS tapes. <laughs> For all of you young kids out there, there, there was these big tapes that you had to put into a player to actually watch movies. I'm better than that. I have a basement full of 16 millimeter films. Oh. <laughs> so I only, sh I really only get to watch now. I show them out back in the summer a couple times. Yeah, I was gonna say, as a film writer, I would almost expect you to have the, the reel to reel or or what have you. Well, you know, I, they are tax deductible. Well, <laughs> and the equipment is tax deductible. Yeah. Uh, all right, folks. That's the other thing you got to worry about when you're a freelance writer. Oh, yeah. 
what little you make, you don't want to share with everybody. Right. <laughs> All right, folks, I think we'll take our second break here. You're listening to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin. I've been talking to Sean Paul Murphy. And uh, we will be right back after your paranormal headlines. And now, Paratruth Radio's Paranormal Headlines. How's it going, para-fans? Justin here with your Paranormal Headlines. And these headlines are from AlteredDimensions.net. Mummified body of missing captain found frozen in time aboard drifting ship. On February 27, 2016, two fishermen in the Philippines discovered the boat of a German adventurer who had been missing for several years. The boat was floating 40 miles off the coast of the Philippines in the seas of Surigao de Sur province when the fishermen spotted the drifting vessel and boarded it. Inside the boat, the fishermen found the mummified body of Manfred Fritz Bajerat sitting at his desk, radio microphone still in hand. Bajerat had been drifting lifelessly around the world for years. Bajerat's body was found near the radio telephone of his 40-foot yacht, the Seo, as if he was attempting to make a mayday call on the radio. The hot, dry ocean winds and salty air helped preserve his body, while dried body fluids kept the body from moving out of place. It is not clear when Bajerat died or how he met his end, but the way he was sitting seems to indicate that death was unexpected perhaps from a heart attack. The mast of the boat was broken, and much of the cabin was submerged underwater. A friend of Bajorat told reporters, He was a very experienced sailor. I don't believe he would have sailed into a storm. I believe the mast broke after Manfred was already dead. Bajorat was identified by personal items near his body, photographs, and a haunting letter to his wife, Claudia, who died from cancer while Bajorat was at sea, The note read, We've been together on the same path. Then the power of the demons was stronger than the will to live. You're gone. May your soul find its peace. You're Manfred. Bangladesh Tree Man Rare disease causes tree-like branches to grow from his body. In Bangladesh, Abul Bazandra is known as the tree man because of an extremely rare genetic condition known as epidermodysplasia furciformis, or tree man disease, which causes large branch-like tentacles resembling tree branches to grow from the body. In Bazandra's instance, the tree-like branches grow from his fingers, palms, and feet, and are so large and cumbersome He cannot eat, drink, brush his teeth, or take a shower without assistance. In fact, according to Bazandra, about the only thing he can do with his hands is scratch his neck. He relies on his 21-year-old wife, Halima, to feed and take care of him. Bazandra first noticed the growth on his legs in 2006 when he was 15 years old. Doctors tried medicines, but the growths continued to spread across his body. In just three years, bark-like growths covered his fingers, forcing him to quit his job as a rickshaw driver. Bazander tried to cut the growths off himself, but says it was too painful. 
Initially, I thought that they were harmless, but slowly I lost all my ability to work. There are now dozens of two to three inch roots in both my hands, and there are some small ones in my legs. As news of his condition spread across the region, he became somewhat of a celebrity, with people coming from far and wide to see him. There are just two other people in the world with this condition. In February 2016, Zandra began his first round of surgery to remove the unusual growths from his body. It is expected to take more than a dozen operations to return his hands and feet to normal. However, doctors at the Dhaka Medical College Hospital say there is no cure for the disease and the warts may reappear. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. Folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin, and I've been talking to Sean Paul Murphy about his film career. Uh, now, Sean, we are coming to the end of the show here. Um, oh, no. Yeah. As Eric says, it's always the saddest part of, of the show. Um, Parting is such sweet sorrow. <laughs> yeah. I came up with that. <laughs> Um, is there anything that you would like to tell the, the audience um, for your final words? Um, you know, um, if you're a writer, keep writing, you know, and make it real to you. Um, I was telling you I've been writing scripts for a long time. Never give up. Um, my script, I, John has been optional probably made this year it's 10 years old one my script then the judgment 28 years old was recently optioned as well you know so um, keep revising things I would tell people don't make your movie work within the system if you work without outside of the system you start at zero every time you know and um, you know you have to you have to bet the farm every time you roll the dice if you look outside the system. So I tell people, you know, if you're writing movies, work within the system. People will read. Be polite to people. Always take no means no. Expect if you send scripts to people and they don't like it, they are not going. To, you know, chances are they are not going to respond to you. Don't call and ask if they liked it. Don't call and ask when that can I expect to hear from you. It's people like that that prevent people from me from being read because it scares <laughs> You know, and um, I do believe, you know, talent will out, you know, and just keep working and always write something new. And I made a huge mistake in my career in the sense once I got an agent. It used to be I didn't even revise a script until I wrote a new script first because I wanted to have that distance from the material. Mm -hmm. And um, so by the time I got the real agent, um, I the scripts I, ha I had some scripts that were very well honed. 
But once people really started liking my work, they weren't buying it, but they were liking it. They wanted to read stuff for the app. I was in such a hurry to provide to try to meet that need to send stuff out. I was essentially sending out first drafts. You know, even though technically speaking, I may have gone through it two or three times, but they weren't the kind of thoughtful rewrites that you need distance to do. Right. So right. I would recommend people, and people are usually too impatient to do this, is to you know write another script before you look at your first script and send it out. And if you don't have another idea that's good, adapt a book that you don't know. Understand that you will never be able to do it. But if I if I read, you know, I would just just for the sake of practice, I also, I adapted some books. You know, if I wasn't ready to roll with another script immediately, I'd adapt a book. You know, and I never thought, well, suddenly this book belongs to me, or I have a right to sell this book or pitch it to people. Mm. You know, the script I just did it just as you know, just as an exercise. You know, because you know, don't get attached to it. <laughs> right. Don't get attached to any of your scripts. You know, your career is not going to hinge on one thing. You know, if you have talent, you got to expect to keep working, and you know, always hoping your next one's going to be better. Not always true, but yeah. All right, and then uh, can you tell everybody where they can find you, find your your movies, all that, and your book as well? Okay, well, I would. The first thing I would always say is definitely pick up the promise or pros and cons of talking to God. It is my own true story. It is not really about the movie business as a. It's a story of first love and first faith and how the two became almost fatally intertwined in my life. You know, um, basically the subject of the story is, you know, God told me one time, you know, because I would hear the voice of God and still do that's like this guy. told me, uh, this neighbor girl said, behold your wife. And guess what? I didn't end up marrying her. So that's what this book is about, how I didn't end up marrying her. How everything else but how, why I didn't, and why everything worked out so beautifully. Because I got a great wife in there, right, baby? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she is. And um, I would check out my blog. Um, it is Sean Paul Murphyville, one word, just type that in Google, and it'll come up. I have lots of writing tips, writing advice. Soon I'm actually going to put more uh, the behind-the-scenes nuts and bolts stuff. I'm thinking of putting up the financial statements of some of the films that were okay. made so people can see where the money's coming You know, and um, on there you'll find my email. I got my AOL address. It is on my um, is on the um, front of my blog. So anybody wants to contact me, they certainly can. I do read my AOL account at least once a week. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know how old that account is. Right. AOL. I was going to say, I didn't even think anybody used AOL anymore. <laughs> Only people who originally used it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've had that account since like 1991 or something. <laughs> so pretty much when they first got started, it, right. <laughs> yeah. I kept it. It's usually like when you go to a store and they want your, um, you don't want to really want to give them your email address, but they're really insistent. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I give you my AOL account, usually that means I don't want to talk to you. I gave you a different. So, um, but I do, I do look at it. You know, I do want people to be, you know, and I do talk to people. I generally will not read your script because I don't want to read anything close to anything. Right, I might read yours, but you know, generally because <laughs> people won't listen to you anyway. Right, you know, most people who. Um, 
won't listen to sound advice, and I didn't always listen to sound advice either. So. Right. Right. Well, I don't think anybody listens to sound advice just about their regular life, let alone their their writing. So, <laughs> especially people who are Christians don't, because they feel God wants them to write it. That's the subject of my next book. Oh. God told me to write this, so therefore they're right. You know, even though you know it's not even in screenplay format. You know, it's like you know every third word is misspelled. Right. You know, it's going to sell because God told him to write. You know, so that's what my next blog is about. I've read quite a few scripts that God mandated there. Their writing. Well, and I'm sure I, you know, I have no doubt that they they may feel that way, or maybe God did tell them to write that. But, but it's true. In the end, if you don't if you don't do it the right way, it ain't going to get done. So well, my analogy is, God told you to write this script. Well, that's just where you start. You know, you have to do a good job. If God told you to be a doctor. You just wouldn't buy a scalpel and start operating. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You would actually learn. You would. You would realize you have to go to medical school. <laughs> you know. So um, I. You know. I feel that pe- people who think think writing's easy. I know words. The <laughs> and are. You know. Big, small. I know lots of words. I could write a script. You know, but usually it's a little more to it than that. Unfortunately. Even people that speak English still don't understand English very well. Yeah, so I've seen that. And I tell you, I have, I've run across some very talented people who I feel are really going to move along as well, too. You know, right. So. Yeah. All but right, Sean. The crazy ones that drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, I've been so grateful to have you on, and uh, as soon as uh, we have a chance, we will get you on again to actually talk about the book itself and get Eric in on the, that conversation as well. So until I also then, was born, I also lived in a haunted house. Oh. Okay. Possessed house for um, there you go. Okay. Usually, don't talk about that, but um, well, when we have this you on, is bare truth, right? If you, when we have you on for the the book, we'll get into the the nuts and bolts for that as well. So, until next time, have a good night, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you very much. Bye bye. All right, folks, that was Sean Paul Murphy, author of The Promise or the Pros and Cons of Talking with God, as well as his uh, illustrious movie career, uh, movie writing career, rather. Uh, we, Like I said, during the conversation with him, I do want to get him back on to actually talk about the book itself. But uh, un- until then, uh, check out his book. The Promise or the Pros and Cons of Talking with God, as well as just Google uh, Sean Paul Murphy and you will find his IMDb uh, profile there and all the different movies he's done. Um, Very awesome guy, very awesome guest, so I was very happy to have him on. Um, Next week, uh, we will have Kay Carswell on as a special guest co-host, undecided on the topic as of yet so if you guys have any ideas uh shoot me an email uh or comment in the comments uh below on youtube or on spreaker uh i do encourage you guys to get on spreaker and follow us on spreaker because then you are uh, notified of the upload to spreaker as soon as it's active um it does become very uh hard to post on facebook now they have been blocking a lot of 
of people posting in different groups. So definitely get to Spreaker and uh, uh, like the page so that way you're just automatically notified when a, a new a uh, a new show is up as well as subscribe on YouTube and again uh, you should get a notification when a new show is up and active um, if you listen to I- on iHeartRadio or any other podcasting uh, syndication uh, software that's fine as well I just encourage you guys to follow us on there and subscribe to YouTube just because you are notified in advance that a new show is up and active also uh, you know find us on Facebook Paratruth Radio and like that page as well as our uh, PTRN group and you will be in with a, a select group of people who listen to both Paratruth Radio and Tiger Girl for God as well as other podcasters as well there's other podcasters that post in our forum as well so until next week where we will see you same time same channel my name is justin have a good night guys if you enjoyed this episode of paratruth radio and you would like to listen to it again or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes then you can listen to them on hd at our website paratruthradio.com and you can also find us at stitcher blueberry TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs)